what I'm trying to help you to see is that God's foreknowledge speaks of his prior knowledge. And the issue of election is not does God elect, but on what basis does he elect? And he elects on the basis of his prior knowledge. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Although the fundamentals of the faith as listed in the Bible are clear as glass, some subjects, like the impact of God's foreknowledge on the Christian's behavior and motivation, give rise to much speculation. Some people like to use the argument that because God has foreknowledge of who will trust in His Son as their Savior, this takes away individual responsibility in sharing the gospel. As we pick up in our message entitled, God's Foreknowledge, from Romans 8, verse 29, Pastor Brogy offers proof that God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that God has predestined some to heaven and some to hell, and that man has absolutely no say in it whatsoever. You might want to jot down this passage and put it in the margin next to verse 37. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Let me read it to you. Paul writes to Timothy and says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, please note, he does not say some men, but all men. In fact, when we come to verse 6, the Apostle Paul is going to remind us that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, in Calvinism, all doesn't mean all. And if you were with us in our study of Romans 5, the second half, we talked about the teaching that some ascribe to today that Jesus didn't die for all, as the hyper-Calvinists teach us, but he died and shed his blood only for the elect. They refer to a limited or to a particular atonement. And so all doesn't mean all in this verse. And I could go through every single verse I'm going to use today and give you the other side of it, but I don't have the time to do that. But if you want me to do that, I have dealt with that in a course we taught on Wednesday nights called the Doctrine of Salvation. And I went through all of the verses that the hyper-Calvinist uses either to argue that Jesus didn't die for all or all the verses that they used to say that God chose some to go to heaven and chose others to go to hell. And with every verse that I'm going to quote, they have an explanation. And so when I read here that God desires all men to be saved, they say, well, all doesn't mean all. If God desires all to be saved and all aren't saved, then that means God isn't sovereign. And that God's sovereign will is somehow smushed, so they say it can't mean all. And so they interpret all men to mean all kinds of men. You know, kings and rulers and servants and all different kinds of people, but not all men. Well, again, I, I think we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I think when you think about the will of God in Scripture, you need to underscore in your thinking that there's a difference between the determinative will of God and the moral will of God. The determinative will of God are things that God is going to do, and you don't have any say in it. You didn't have any say in the fact that in six literal 24-hour days, God created the heavens and the earth. He did it, and He didn't consult you or me. 
And you don't have any say in the fact that someday God is going to speak this world out of existence. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, and he's going to burn it with fire. And then in a moment's time, Revelation 21 teaches he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He's not going to take six days to do it. He's going to do it in a split second. We have Christians today who are trying to bleed together science and Bible, and they say, well, this world can't be just six or 7,000 years old. It must be millions of years old. And we talked about that. But they don't have an explanation for the fact that in a moment's time, God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, God's going to do that. That's part of his determinative will, and everything in God's determinative will will be finished. But there's also God's moral will. And the scripture is clear that God's moral will is not always done. It's God's moral will for people not to murder, but people murder folks every day. That does not mean that God is frustrated or less than sovereign that people commit murder. It just indicates that God gives man a free will to choose. Jesus made this statement in Matthew 12, 50. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. The clear implication of that verse is not everyone chooses to do the will of God. And therefore, they can't be counted as true believers. Because as a mark and evidence and fruit of conversion, people want to do the will of God. That's a result of being saved. And so while man is free to choose the moral will of God, of course, he's not free to escape the consequences. But what I want you to see is that God's moral will is not automatically done. Man has a free will. And it's part of your free will because it's in the moral will of God. For Jesus said, for this is the will of the Father and the work of the Father that you believe in him whom he has sent. And Paul, before we were done again in Romans 16, will speak of what he said in the introductory chapter of the obedience of faith. Faith is not a work, but it is a choice that you need to make because it is part of the moral will of God. And for you to say no to God and no to Jesus Christ is a moral decision that you will make with moral eternal consequences with it. And so Paul says here that it's God's desire for men to come to a knowledge of the truth. And when he says he desires all men to be saved, he's not teaching universalism because clearly not all men are saved. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way, the road is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. And so he underscored that many will not be saved. But neither is God's will frustrated when he says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. The word desire is the word fellow, and it speaks of God's wish, God's wants, God's heart, God's delight. God delights in the salvation of souls. But salvation, Paul tells us, depends on the knowledge of the truth. And not all men have yet received that knowledge, and others have received that knowledge, and they've rejected that knowledge. And so, again, God's heart is not that people will perish, but that men will come to a knowledge of the truth. And it reminds us of what our mission is as believers and as a local assembly. We can't just be content with our salvation. We can't say, well, I'm saved and God is my Savior and the rest of the world can hang. No, God has commissioned us to go irrespective of your spiritual gift and whether or not you're called into uh, full-time ministry or not, we're all full-time ministers in that we have been entrusted with the gospel and we've been called to go. 
So, no, God wants all men to be saved. Now, there are people like Rob Bell who use this verse out of context and he teaches universalism. And he says, because God wants all men to be saved, in the end, all men will be saved. He teaches Love Wins. It's a best-selling book on the New York Times bestseller list right now. And this is a guy who pastors a so-called evangelical church of several thousand, seven or 8,000, though he just recently left it. And now he's into all kinds of wacko things, like homosexuality is being okay. Listen, we're living in strange times. The freshmen at one of our schools this year in South Carolina are required to read a book that is all about homosexual and lesbian relationships. It's the required reading. And then they're going to bring in a lecturer this year, who, the, the people who wrote the book, to lecture to our freshmen. We're living in strange days and we need to be praying for our youth as they go off to the university that God will put some steel on their spine and allow them to stand strong because what they are standing for is very unpopular in the day that we live in. Let me give you another verse, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all, A-double-L, to come to repentance. Well, the Calvinists would say, that's right, Pastor. God wants all to come to repentance, but they can't repent unless God first chooses them. Well, it is true that God has to first work in their heart because, again, in Romans 3 and verse 11, it says, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. And so the Arminian is in error by teaching that man has a spark left in himself where he can respond to God independently of God. Jesus said it, couldn't say it any more plainly in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you have to ask, does God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit give all men an equal chance? Well, write down this verse, John 12 and verse 32, John 12, 32. There Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Again, all men, not just all kinds of men. Uh, John 16, verse 8, and he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world, and world means world. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You see, the problem is not with God's sovereignty. The problem we're going to see is with man's choice, with man's will. Uh, Turn back a page, you're in John 6. Just turn back a page to John 5 for a moment. Look at John chapter 5 and verse 39, if you will. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders, religious leaders in Israel, and he says this in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that bear witness of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He doesn't say unable, he says unwilling. I think of that day just before his crucifixion where there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem And with great grief and brokenness of heart, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Not unable, but unwilling. I love what Paul said to Timothy in his first letter, 1 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy 2 in his second letter. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, 
that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul got into trouble for the preaching of the gospel. And if you ask Paul, well, Paul, why do you suffer so much for the preaching of the gospel? Why are you beaten? Why are you stoned? Why, why do you fast? Why do you pray? Why were you pickled in the Mediterranean? And Paul would say, for the sake of the chosen, for the sake of the elect. And if you ask Paul, well, Paul, who are the elect? Who are the chosen? I believe, as I hope to demonstrate here in the weeks ahead and begin to today, Paul would say the chosen are the whosoever wills, the elect are the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. Friends, listen. If everybody automatically who are elect are going to be saved, and they will be saved, but if they are automatically going to be saved, then why did Paul struggle the way he did and fast and pray and be beaten and stoned and suffer? Because we have a responsibility in the process of bringing the gospel and calling to men and entreating to men for them to come to Jesus Christ. Now, that's the first question. Does foreknowledge negate free will? And the Bible answer would, be, would say no. But let's ask a second question and go a little bit further. How does foreknowledge and election intersect? How, the, how do the two meet? How does foreknowledge and election intersect? Now, please know that every Bible-believing Christian who takes the Scriptures seriously believes in the doctrine of election. I hope before you are done today, you can leave today and say, no, I believe in the doctrine of election. I mean, Ephesians 1 and verse 4 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. And that word chose is the word that we get our word election from. There is a supernatural dimension to your conversion that begins with God. Again, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and there's none who seeks God, no, not one. And so if by nature you are like a dead man in a coffin, then God must take the initiative. As Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. And this process by God, of God drawing people to himself is called divine election. But understand, the question is not if God elects. That's not the point of debate. The point of debate is how does God elect? And that's the issue that we want to explore. Yet the hyper-Calvinists could say that you can have two pregnant women side by side in either baby ever before they saw the light of day that one baby was chosen for heaven and the other baby was chosen for hell. Now we're going to explore this in the ninth chapter. So hold on to your hat. We will come to it. Now, I happen to believe that that is a slander to the character of God Almighty. I don't think that God arbitrarily damns some into an eternal existence and others into heaven. I think man truly, genuinely has a choice. God doesn't create people so that they can spend an eternity in hell. He made man for his glory, and he made man ultimately that he could know the living God and have a relationship with him. But man does not, you know, is not just created so that he can, he can spend an eternity in hell. Now, they have an answer to this, and I'm going to come to that. But I want you to think about the invitations that God gives in the, in the Bible. And if the invitations that are given in the Word of God are true, then it means that man can really respond. Listen to this invitation. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
This is what the Holy Spirit says at the end of the Revelation. The Spirit and the bride says, come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come. God doesn't invite people to a salvation that is impossible for them to receive. This is important. And if it doesn't interest you this morning, there's coming a time when it will interest you. If you ask Rick Forstner up there in the nosebleed seats, what is the single most asked question on the Bible line week after week after week after week? It is concerning the doctrine of predestination and election. Now, very simply, the word foreknowledge means before knowledge. And so this question, how does foreknowledge, how does foreknowledge and election intersect? The answer is very, very simple. It's based, God's election is based on his foreknowledge. God's advanced knowledge determines his advanced choosing, which brings us to a third question. Is foreknowledge an attribute or an act of God? Is foreknowledge an attribute or an act of God? Now, many people believe that because God knows what will take place, that he is totally responsible for what takes place. And that's not true. Again, if God didn't know, God would not be God. God's foreknowledge does not determine your decision. But the Calvinists would say it does. They would not view foreknowledge as a divine attribute, but as a divine act, a divine determination that God decides. Now listen, God knows in advance who will be saved. And there are many passages in the Word of God that affirms that. For instance, in the Revelation, in the 13th chapter, the 8th verse, the Apostle John reminds us that the names of the people who will be saved were written down before God created the world. He says it this way in Revelation 13 and verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. He's talking about the Antichrist, that's coming world leader. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Who's all here? Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. Now, he makes an identical statement in Revelation 17 and verse 8. And both verses imply crystal clearly that those who are true believers will not worship the Antichrist because their name is written down in the book of life. Jesus taught this when he sent the 70 out to represent him, and they came back so excited because even the demons responded to their ministry in the name of Christ. And Jesus said, listen, as wonderful as it is and as exciting as it is that the demons respond to the authority I've entrusted to you, nevertheless, he said in Luke 10, 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but that your names are recorded in heaven. Already there. Uh, listen to this verse, Philippians 4 and verse 3. Paul says, indeed, true companion, I ask you to help those women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, John affirms that that's done before the foundation of the world. And it's assumed in other passages. There was a popular hymn, I think it was written in 1905, it, it was entitled, There's a New Name Written Down in Glory. And I sang it as a new Christian, though I haven't sung that in decades. But the thought behind the hymn is that God is busy up in heaven, either he or one of his recording angels, writing down the names of all those people who are saved every hour. Well, that's not a biblical thought. Because God says he already has a book, and in the book of the names of every single individual who has been saved, who are saved, who will be saved. 
and that that book was recorded ever before God spoke the world into existence. And so it's not really a biblical hymn, but that does not take away from your free will. It in no way the omniscience of God diminishes the free will of man. If you go to hell, it won't be God's fault. It will be your fault because you rejected Christ. So Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Those whom God the Father gave to the Son are those whom He foreknew. Those whom God in advance knew would respond to the preaching of the gospel. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise. Now, I want to give you some verses that teach that this is the simple meaning of foreknowledge. Because the Calvinist wants to make the word foreknowledge means to choose rather than to have advanced knowledge. They want to make it a divine act and not a divine attribute. But I want you to see from Scripture the way the word is simply used, it just means advanced knowledge. It means what it says. And that's why translation, translators historically translated it as foreknowledge. Uh, jot down some of these verses. 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. Um, this is a verse, you know it. It says that a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. See, God is the great I am. We've been studying that on Wednesday nights. Dr. Larry has been reminding us of the names of God, and the first name that we studied was Yahweh, the great I Am. That God is eternally present. That God lives not in time and space, but He lives in eternity, and He is eternally present. And He sees things from a perspective that we do not see. In um, Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is before this king. His name is Agrippa. And he's sharing his testimony, and he makes this statement. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own, my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. You see those words have known about, it's the gr same Greek word, prognosko, used here in Romans 8, 29, those whom God foreknew. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. In other words, he's saying, listen, these Jews who are here today who are accusing me, they know my former manner of life. They know all about me. Again, the word is being used to describe prior knowledge that these people have. And Paul is inviting them to testify before the king if they would so choose to do. Jot down this verse where foreknowledge is used. Romans 11 and verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The word foreknew, again, it's the same word, prognosko, used here in Romans 8 and verse 29. When we come to Romans 11, we will study this verse very carefully. But contextually, it refers to the fact that God knew in advance that not all the Jewish people would reject Jesus as their Messiah, that there would be a remnant who would believe just like there was a remnant in Elijah's day who did not bow the knee to Baal. Jot down this verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Let me begin in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, was foreknown, same verb, prognosco, before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. It's the same word. He's reminding us that God knew beforehand that he would send his son to redeem the world ever before he made the world, as the revelation affirms, because God knew that man would sin and rebel. Jot down this verse, Acts 2 and verse 23. P 
Peter is preaching. It's the day of Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Here it is, noun form. Prognosis. By the prognosis of God, you have, you have taken by lawless means and have crucified and put him to death. Same thought. He's saying, listen, the death of Jesus didn't catch God by surprise. It was planned. It was according to the predetermined plan and prior knowledge of God. Jot down this verse, 2 Peter 3 and verse 17. Peter is warning Christians in his day and in our day of false teachers who will come into the church. And he says, you therefore, beloved, know this beforehand. Those three words, know this beforehand, is one word in Greek, prognosko. Same word used in Romans 3.29. You therefore, beloved, know beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Again, he, he's warning us ahead of time that there will be false teachers who will come into the church and he says because you will know this ahead of time you ought to be on the alert what i'm trying to help you to see is that god's foreknowledge speaks of his prior knowledge and the issue of election is not does god elect but on what basis does he elect and he elects on the basis of his prior knowledge. Peter couldn't say it any more plainly here in 1 Peter 1, 2. Let me read this verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, who are chosen, it's a word for election, who are elected, how? According to the foreknowledge, there's the word prognosis again, a Greek medical term, who are elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so, yes, the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. It is not a question of if, but how does God do it? Now, sometimes I think, in my humble opinion, it is a dangerous thing to give high truth to highly educated people because it is very easy to mix human alloy in with that truth. And I am always impressed by the fact that on the very first Christmas, God didn't appear to the well-educated he appeared to a bunch of simple, uneducated shepherds to tell them about his salvation. And when you travel the world, whether you're in Africa or India or China or wherever it is you are, and you meet the multitudes, the multitudes don't believe what some in this country believe in reference to the doctrine of election. They just read the Bible at face value. And there are some people who are educated beyond their own intelligence and they have departed from what the Apostle Paul calls the simplicity of devotion to Jesus Christ. Now again, we've just cracked the door on this subject, but let's talk about how this all applies this morning before we leave. A couple of applications. Number one, I learn, I'm reminded that if you want to be foreknown by God for salvation, you can be. If you want to be foreknown, if you want to be one of his chosen, if you want to be one of his elect, you can be. I have good news for you, that God loves you and he wants you. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me will not be cast out. And if you come to him today, he will not abandon you. The gospel is simple. Mankind is born sinful and separated from God. God grieves over that separation 
and so he's made a provision for all to be reconciled to him through the atoning sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ. To those who believe in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, God has given the title, Child of God. It's so simple, and yet some try to make it complicated. If you'd like to hear this important message in its entirety, you can do so by using the Search the Scriptures app with Carl Brogy, available from the iTunes Store and the Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a hard copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we conclude our look at Pastor Brogy's message entitled, God's Foreknowledge. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.